I'd like to invite Adam Crichton on, to come on up. If you give Adam a, a hand. Thanks for coming, Adam. Adam is uh, Adam's coming to speak to us today on one of life's most difficult challenges, which is grief. Uh, he has been a, uh, volunteering as a facilitator in bereavement support groups for about 20 years and had some thoughts on where Jesus is in grief, uh, both in light of what he's seen over the years and as part of your personal uh, grief story, which I know you're going to share with us. And I'll just turn it over to him. Thanks, Adam. Well, thanks, Joel. Appreciate it. Morning, everybody. Well, uh, I'm hoping today to spend a few minutes reflecting on some wisdom the scripture imparts to us uh, about grieving and mourning. We've uh, just finished the Christmas season, which promises us hope and peace and joy and love. Sometimes, though, after the party's over, we get this kind of crash. The reality of January, and in some cases, the unexpected struggle of Christmas season is a reminder that some things haven't changed and one of those things can be the journey that is grief. Before we get into some thoughts on that, since not everybody knows me, uh, it's probably best to introduce myself in a couple of different ways to you. It might be easiest to start by saying I'm Fiona's husband (laughs) because you've probably run into her in the kids ministry downstairs in her role as part of the team helping Emma lead our kids men program. You and Alyssa and Luke are unfortunately saddled with me as their dad with varying levels of embarrassment during the day. And honestly, I'm not too sure how long we've been coming to Wellspring. I feel a little bit old when I try and figure that out, so we're not going to do that. (laughs) Whether you've been here for a long time or a short time, you also may not know my story or background of how Jesus has used grief as a ministry in my life as well as that of others, uh, which Joel was referring to a minute ago. I've been volunteering as a grief group facilitator for about 20 years, first with teens and then with people in their 20s and 30s who just simply like somebody to walk with them in their grief journey. I do this through coping bereavement support groups, most recently as an associate director as well as a group facilitator. Coping is a ministry and not-for-profit charity my parents founded with some roots at Milton Alliance Church, which is now called Southside. Coping is now a standalone ministry trying to show people some ways Jesus loves them in the midst of their pain from loss due to the death of a loved one. My parents started coping after my sister died of leukemia when I was six. Rochelle was four when she was diagnosed on August the 4th, 1982, and she died on August the 9th, five days later, after a mercifully short battle with that horrible disease. Some of what I talk about in the next few minutes will draw on a lifetime grief journey that I've taken thus far, and some will reflect on what others have taught me as I've done those groups I talked about. I want to be sensitive to those of you walking a grief journey on your own right now. Today, mostly I'm speaking about grief in the context of death, because that's what I know. But many of the same principles can be applied when your loss is not due to death. Maybe it's divorce. Maybe it's estrangement from your family. Maybe it's having to leave your home country because of war. Maybe even a lead pastor moving on to another role. The list is very long. All loss experiences are unique and predicated on the circumstances and relationships in them, amongst other variables. Having a loved one die is a particularly difficult type of suffering, I would argue, even in the context of the hope of the cross. But we always want to be careful about recognizing everyone's unique journey and their suffering, no matter the source. 
To put this another way, my experience may not be similar to your experience. Again, everyone's grief is unique. If it gets tough to navigate this today, as we kind of traverse this tricky content, just take a comfort break for a few minutes, no problem. Talking about grief is hard, but not talking about it in the, is harder in the long run and has some serious consequences. At some point, we all face it. And while there's no roadmap or template we can follow, there are some things we can learn to do and do with each other to ease the burden. Would you pray with me for just a minute while we get into uh, some more thoughts on where Jesus might be here? Lord God, we are so grateful for a God who knows us and understands what it means to be human. As we continue in your presence this morning, we pray for a peace that only you can bring, while we consider ways to endure loss informed by wisdom only you have. May the words I speak not be mine but yours, and may they, those that miss the mark just be forgotten. Jesus, we invite you to move among us now and bring healing as we face the consequences of death. Amen. Let's, uh, let's start off by considering Matthew 5, 4. Uh, it imparts the uh, well-known wisdom, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. How exactly does that work? I love the truth imparted by Scripture here, and the challenge of implementing comfort as a church family is immense at times. I think this happens to be one of the trickier Beatitudes to live with in a practical way. How do we genuinely live out the hope of the cross while still meeting people where they're at in suffering and mourning? So we're going to do three things. We're going to look first at some information, the myths of mourning. Then we'll go into some scripture and thoughts on where faith might fit into our grief journeys and how we can help each other endure the pain of loss. And then we'll finish up with hope, because with Jesus, it always finishes with hope. Now, up front, the format of my message might be kind of unique, and we'll draw on my own experience in grief, as I mentioned. But as you probably know, the Bible does have quite a lot to say about grief and suffering. Like anything else in life, we need to approach grief through the lens of God's truth. That, therefore, means we need to address some fundamental myths that both culturally and as believers, we have come to often accept about grief. Not only do we need to acknowledge these myths about grief, but we need to throw them out. They simply don't work in practice, and they aren't true. One last thing before I get to this. Don't worry if you've bought into any of these myths. They are... Much of our death-avoidant cultural dialogue in the Western world revolves around these myths, and they're very hard to see past as a result. So myth number one, grief and mourning are the same experience. They are not. Grief is the internal thoughts and feelings we have about our losses. It is the pain, the sense of sadness, the emptiness, the loneliness, the anger, the despair. The list goes on. Mourning is grief gone public. It is things like funerals, like social media laments, maybe coming forward for prayer ministry. It is doing something in memory of the person that died and talking about their life and death with those who knew them. Everyone grieves, but not everyone mourns. They get the keep busy or keep your chin up message and just try not to. Without mourning, healing into a new sense of normal is not possible. The loss will not reconcile, and you'll be left less whole and less able to live in love fully again. 
Part of why grief feels so lonely for many, I think, is because we don't mourn together well. I can't tell you how many times I hear in my support group statements like, I've never really told someone this, but I feel like I really need to, followed by a story of some very difficult circumstances around someone dying. Following up the next week, I often ask questions like, how did you feel after telling that story? And it's usually something like, tired, but relieved, or I can't explain it, but I felt lighter. We need each other to mourn. Your grief journey is unique, but you need not walk it alone. It's singular, but it need not be solitary. Myth number two. There is a predictable and orderly stage-like progression to grief. While sometimes grief experiences share some commonality, grief is incredibly unique, as I've mentioned about five times so far. Are you getting that? Yeah. And does not follow a progressive pattern towards healing. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote at the stages in her 1969 book called On Death and Dying, and later commented she never intended for people to take them as a roadmap, but just to create a sense of commonality. So you may today feel denial, or you may never feel denial. Tomorrow, anger, or never anger. Then back to denial, then off to do some bargaining, over to depression for a while, back to anger, and then maybe to acceptance, which... I would argue, isn't really acceptance. I don't accept death. Neither did Jesus. We learn to live with it while he does his work to reconcile it. Myth number three. It's best to move away from your grief instead of towards it. We often perpetrate this myth with statements like, they're so strong, to one another because they're not shedding a tear or just continuing on as if nothing has happened. This is honestly a little bit absurd, and it implicitly denies them permission to mourn in our presence. Our very identities are tied not only to what we are as followers of Jesus, but also, in a practical way, our identity is tied to our relationships. You are someone's son or daughter. You are someone's mom or dad. We understand what that means. We understand that as part of our identity. To suggest that you can move away from these exceptional demands of converting a relationship from one of presence to one of memory and redefining your identity by moving away from it doesn't work. Move towards grief and through the darkness to the light on the other side, and that leads to a well-reconciled grief journey. Number four, tears expressing grief are a sign of weakness. I'd like to comment here that saying things like they wouldn't want you to cry or even they're there and patting someone on the back is a subtle message that they should not engage in those difficult emotions because it makes you uncomfortable. Of course, those attempts at soothing words come from a good place trying to protect each other from pain, so let's not be too hard on ourselves. But a lot of courage can be found in acknowledging and sharing this pain which is so central to our existence. Death is so terrible, the God of the universe was willing to become flesh and hang on a cross to defeat it. It necessarily pains us the way it pained him when Lazarus died. Let me just point you to John 11:33 to 35. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. A few weeks ago, Pete brought us a message in the I Am series and discussed the theological interpretation of why Jesus wept. 
I think he quoted John MacArthur as having suggested that Jesus wept at the brokenness of sin in this world and death, even though he knew Lazarus would be raised from the dead. I kind of wonder as well if he wept along with Mary and Martha at the loss of their brother and his friend as he empathized with them and the pain of loss that they were bearing. I also wonder if the friend that Jesus was to all these people reminded him in a way of what he was about to defeat on the cross, all sin, all hurt, all suffering that ultimately leads to death. Myth number five, the goal is to get over your grief. Not so. We never get over it. We simply learn to reconcile and live with it. We don't resolve or recover. Those words have a sense of ending to them. Grief journeys are lifelong. Our love-based relationships demand a piece of ourselves which we can't simply replace in their absence. Instead, consider the outcome, but not goal, of grief and mourning to be reconciliation. We can broadly think about reconciliation as an understanding of the loss in the context of a wider meaning, including finding a sense of new normal without the person who died. I need to unpack that a little bit for you because it's kind of abstract and it's a different way of thinking about grief for most people. The shaking is slightly nervousness and slightly a twitch. Don't worry about it. Uh, It's easiest to describe the way I personally think about this as part of my grief journey and hope that it might kind of shed a little bit of light for you on yours, uh, remembering that yours is unique and might be different. I have to summarize for time. Reconciliation is a very deep and wide experience that permeates much of life, but here goes. I have had to understand reconciliation and grief is not a destination. It's a journey that continues throughout our lives, constantly updating in its understanding. In my case, this has meant reforming the way I view God to both live with the mystery when Rochelle died of why us, why her, why then, but then see the grace in his willingness to provide opportunities to bring meaning to her death through the grief support work and talking to you today. It has meant living in a very real world where kids die. It means understanding for our kids that a stomachache is usually just a stomachache and not leukemia. It has meant I had to stop for a minute when Fiona and I got married to wonder what it would have been like to have Rochelle there. It meant learning to be brave as a little kid. She was always the one who went up the stairs to turn on the light. It meant figuring out what a normal, new normal was then and is now without her. I think perhaps this is what C.S. Lewis meant when he wrote, Grief is like the ocean. It comes on waves, ebbing and flowing. Sometimes the water is calm, and sometimes it's overwhelming. All we can do is learn to swim. And finally, in describing a new sense of normal after he lost his wife, the act of living is different all through. Her absence is like the sky spread over everything. Reconciliation is not one thing. It is spread over everything for as long as you live. Myth number six, faith makes us exempt from our feelings. This is, for many of us here today, the most dangerous of the myths, I think. The hope provided by salvation is often used to justify a minimization of the intense hurt of living without someone that we love that died. It's here where I think we might spend a few minutes looking at some different ways Scripture talks about grief again. Let's have a look at John 16, 22. So with you, now is the time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. 
in this scripture, John was relaying some of Jesus' words referring to his own death. But I think it's interesting here that Jesus was specifically acknowledging a sense of loss that the disciples would have when he was killed. Many suggest, of course, this was not just in the immediate term, but was also referring to Jesus' ascension and, and his return to earth one day. But I think it's remarkable still that this was specifically mentioned. We do not need to ignore the awful consequences or feelings of profound sadness death brings. We do not degrade or take from the hope our faith provides because we mourn. Instead, we acknowledge, as Jesus did, the pain and suffering death brings, which he did not only to refer- when he referred to himself here, but also in weeping when Lazarus died. Over the last couple of decades, we've kind of stopped calling our ritual of saying goodbye funerals. Instead, we call them celebrations of life. We celebrate the life of someone and their promotion to the presence of Jesus. Sure, absolutely. But it sends a subtle message of sorts. We seem to ignore the reality that the Savior wept over Lazarus' death first. If we want to really emulate all of who he was, we probably should think about creating space to weep in addition to the space for the hope of redemption that the cross brings. So practically, there's some specific things to think about when you yourself grieve or if you're helping someone who is. Comments like, they are in a better place, or do not cry there with Jesus, are somewhat true, I suppose, but they don't really help us to reconcile those losses. And please don't worry if you said stuff like this. Most people understand the intent beneath the words, right? Well, uh, we may feel a sense of relief knowing that the suffering is over for someone when they die, if they've been suffering, and by the way, sometimes a bit guilty about that sense of relief. We still need to find a way to live without them and reconcile the terrible memories that the trauma of death can inflict. Reconciliation in the context of faith sometimes requires asking the Lord some difficult and maybe even dangerous questions. Why me? Or why us? Why them? Where is God in this situation? It's interesting to note that more than half the book of Psalms are laments. Laments both on community and individual pain. The psalmists obviously considered faith, but didn't hide underneath it. They turned to God in their lament. Of course, we could not talk about suffering and not look at the book of Job. Uh, He's always uh, there. It would take a long time to go through Job's detail and, uh, story in detail, but as a reminder, Job suffered the loss of all he had, including his health. He never cursed God, but spent a lot of time asking him questions and lamenting, going so far as to suggest it was better he had never been born at one point. Church family, mostly what I hope you'll hear today through this portion of Job's story is not the incredible courage of Job in the face of immeasurable suffering, although it's certainly valuable to note those lessons. They are well-established and far better... There are, pardon me, there are well-established and far better theodicies, which just means defenses of God's goodness in the face of evil, that have been written about Job than I could ever hope to create a commentary on. What I would like to do, though, is turn to Job for a moment and see some ways we can help each other as we grieve. So Job 2, 11 through 13 says, When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. 
They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Church, this is one of our challenges. Sit out from your homes to comfort one another in loss. Weep with one another and metaphorically or maybe literally sit on the ground with each other. This matters more than anything you say or do to walk with a grieving person. And it is one of the most powerful examples of how Jesus' love is in action in people's lives today. When my sister died, it was a Christian hockey player friend of my dad's who came and sat in our living room for weeks. Not really saying much, I'm told, but just sipping on coffee and watching TV. It wasn't very comfortable. It wasn't fun. It wasn't easy, but it was survival in some very dark days. Beyond that presence of one another, what then are some other ways we can put this into practice and be like Job's friends to each other and the grief journeys around us? We have this habit of saying, if you need anything, please don't hesitate to reach out. I have a bit of wisdom for you. Almost no one will. Instead, think about actively checking in over several months, not just two weeks, or worse, the three days you get off work in the standard bereavement policy. How we are supposed to end a lifetime of relationship and reconcile that in three days is beyond my comprehension at this point. But I digress. It's helpful to ask some questions like, how can I help you when you feel overwhelmed? Are you eating and taking care of yourself? Can I make you something? Now, church, just an aside. Grieving people love lasagnas, but not that much. <laughs> Break it up a little. It's a running joke in my groups all the time. <laughs> just a, one lasagna is fine, but 25 lasagna, yeah, okay, you got it. What's your favorite memory right now? Is there something I can do that might be comforting right now? What has helped you in other tough times? Can we do that together? Would you like to have coffee or lunch today? We can talk about something else other than grief if you want, or we can talk about your grief, whatever you think. I'm here to help with some chores. Can I take out the garbage or do the backyard work or clean up? Very practical matters like this seem trivial, but they are very hard to do for grieving people. Do you want to talk about anything at the moment? And lastly, avoid advice giving. By all means, if you found something helpful in your grief experiences, offer it as a suggestion. By saying something that helped me was, but don't prescribe things. Healing and grief comes from the journey, not the instructions other people give you. So now, since we've covered some myths and some of the ways we can help each other, maybe we can also think about what a future looks like as part of a grief journey. Often for Christ followers, the question of how can I use this suffering to bring Jesus to the world and so create some meaning comes up. Let's not confuse meaning for reason. There is little to be gained, in my opinion, by suggesting the reason someone died was only to accomplish the purposes for the kingdom. While that may or could actually be true, I guess, it does not really help the mourner to point it out, and in most cases, I would argue you can't really know. I personally think when people die, their purpose for the kingdom is accomplished, whatever it was, but I have yet to find a reason for my sister to die at four years old. Death probably shouldn't make sense like that because God didn't originally design us for it. Death is a curse of sin. There is, however, 
great opportunity to bring meaning in my sister's life, which I'm doing right now by sharing this perspective with you and extensively in the bereavement groups I facilitate. I have to say how awesome it is to me to have the opportunity to show people the compassion of Jesus in the depths of their suffering by walking alongside them in their journey and also honor Rochelle's memory by doing so. Perhaps my other challenge to you, in addition to sitting in the ashes with each other, is to bring to bear your lost experiences and companion or walk alongside those around you in their grief journey. Maybe, maybe sharing in their grief journey will bring meaning to yours. So, I'm over 20 minutes. My granddad is very angry in heaven now, but that's fine. We're going to keep going. If I may, though, be so bold as to quote Shane and land the plane here. Let's turn back to John 16:22. As a reminder, it says, I will see you again and will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. This captures in one way the unfailing, everlasting, and completeness of hope we have in Jesus. I want to tell you something I've noticed, church family. I companion both Christians and non-Christians in our grief groups. Companion comes from Latin, and it means to come with bread to someone, but in contemporary English, it means to come alongside someone. While non-Christians find very effective ways to reconcile their grief and loss, they lack the reconciliatory catalyst that the hope of the cross brings to the journey of believers. When in the midst of the garbage of grief, focusing on seeing Jesus again, knowing he has defeated death, and being filled with anticipation of him making it all right, can be a powerful tool that provides moments of relief from the otherwise unbearable pain of death. Coupled with a body of fellow Christians who will metaphorically tear their clothes with you, as Job's friends did in this suffering, we find courage to endure and then find a new sense of normal as we face the death of those around us. So a closing thought as the worship team returns to the stage. A few months ago in March, Sundar Krishnan spoke here at Wellspring about glory. This sermon is online, and if you missed it, you should probably go back and watch it. It was fantastic stuff. One of the things that struck me, if you'll permit me to paraphrase what he was saying, was that our wow experience of glory, which includes hope, in my opinion, is not just the lion who defeated death. It's also the lamb who suffered on the cross. If I could extend the metaphor, we we endure the suffering of the lamb, and so therefore death, so that we can experience the wow of the lion who defeated it, and so therefore resurrection and assurance and the ultimate triumph over death. If we hope to endure the suffering of the lamb in death, who better to do it with than those who know Jesus? Both the lion and the lamb. It is an opportunity to see, it is an opportunity together to see the hope of Jesus and be wowed at how we're able to lean on each other in suffering as a reflection of how Jesus also walks with us through it. This has been difficult content today for some. If you're enduring a grief journey, having lost someone you loved and would like some help, I've got coping brochures with me. Coping's in Cambridge, but it's not that far, honestly. The programs are free, and the groups start up in the spring, and we can also refer you to counselors who specialize in grief. Additionally, and probably really importantly this morning, I know that our prayer ministry team will sit in the ashes with you after the service today, or anytime. 
Mourn with them in prayer and invite Jesus, who wept with Mary and Martha, to weep with you. Same goes for our connect groups. I am sure that we would and do mourn with each other all the time. Church family, may Jesus comfort you as you endure your grief journeys. May he bring meaning and reconciliation in your journey with one another.